of the scriptures. Or at least what we see is that those who are right by the Holy Spirit uh, sometimes use the same images. And those ought to be important to us uh, when we find those things reoccurring. One of those images we have been talking about, at least from one perspective, uh, for the last couple of lessons, when we talk about uh, church leaders and godly leaders, uh, we've often referenced the image of the shepherd uh, as one who cares for the sheep, because that terminology, uh, shepherding or pastoring, is used both in the, uh, mostly in the verb form as it describes those who lead God's people. Uh, in John chapter 10, Jesus uses uh, the shepherd image. And I would suggest to you, as I mentioned, that I think that that, uh, that, that shouldn't surprise us because shepherds are, appear over and over again in the scriptures. From the very beginning, Abel was a keeper of sheep and offered an, a, a sacrifice acceptable to God out, his, out of his flocks. Uh, the patriarchs were shepherds and the, the taking of sheep and the possessing of sheep uh, exemplified the blessings of God, that God was with them and providing for them because their flocks grew. Uh, and some of the lessons that he would teach under those patriarchs were, ta- were, were taught right out of the occupation of being a shepherd. Uh, think about uh, even when God would chose those, choose those who would speak for him. Amos was a herdsman. Uh, that he took from that occupation individuals who were well aware of that uh, particular experience of life. Because again, they were things that had to do with their everyday life that God would use to bring about his message. And then, of course, there's David, the premier shepherd of the Old Testament, uh, that filled the scriptures with the, the, the words of worship, sometimes reflecting clearly upon the experiences of his own occupation. It was David's experience as a shepherd that he used as a foundation for the courage to face the great giant and that propelled him into being the king of Israel. When the Old Testament prophets wrote about David later on, uh, they wrote about him as much as being a shepherd as they did about a king, that uh, they recognized the value uh, of his occupation and the spiritual mission that God had placed before him, even the prophetic vision that Jesus would uh, be one who would come after him and as well would be a shepherd. So I think about that being so predominant in the Bible, I think about what occupation is there among us uh, that if God were to, uh, to look out into our society and use something that we could all relate to over a long period of time, maybe generations and generations, what would that be? Uh, And I think there's very few things that would fall into that same category, if anything, that would transcend the generations and provide an image for God to use in his word uh, throughout those generations as the occupation of the shepherd. So Jesus, in John chapter 10, utilizes the shepherd image to reflect upon himself. John writes from from the very perspective and with the goal of establishing the identity of Jesus. Who is Christ? Uh, I am the good shepherd. Uh, and so John is filled with these images of I, where Jesus makes the I am statements uh, that present a particular element of his identity, uh, ultimately so that we can better understand what he's done for us um, and his own unique character. The shepherd is a part of that when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And that's found here uh, in John chapter 10. There's some other images here that I'd like for us to look at as we're thinking about it, as we have been thinking about this aspect of shepherding and what it involved from the human perspective. What does it it involve when Jesus uses it to describe himself? Uh, We're going to read John chapter 10, the first 18 verses there, if you want to read along with me. Most assuredly, I, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come in except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is, uh, is he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my sheep, my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. And this command I have received from my Father. It's interesting to note as well as we look at this, uh, this um, multifaceted use of the illustration that as plain as it might seem to us in some respects of seeing Jesus as a shepherd and making sense of, these, uh, of the metaphors here, it tells us twice in this text that when Jesus said these words, they didn't understand. Or it sees it tells us first they didn't understand, so Jesus amplifies a little bit. And then at the end it says there was division among them over what he was actually saying. And I find that fascinating because I think there are some things in this text uh, as far as making application from what they should have known about Old Testament prophecy and what they certainly should have known about Jesus' care and love for them that should really have made sense and certainly have given them some great insight. We look at the passage altogether. Pulpit commentary breaks this particular this particular section uh, this particular section of scriptures into three different uh, uh, sections. Uh, each marked by a paragraph in those Bibles that are written in paragraph form. In the first paragraph in verses 1 through 6, uh, it says, he says, Our Lord gives a parabolic picture of the flock and the fold and the door and the porter and the robber and the shepherd. So what Jesus does when he starts out is he gives a general illustration of several different things that relate to the shepherd and his sheep and how he takes care of the sheep. But then it says they didn't understand that. And so in the next paragraph, Jesus emphasizes the relationship between the door and the fold and he claims to be the door of the sheep, emphasizing the, aspect, the, the element of coming in and going out and having access. And then in the third paragraph, he illustrates the function and the responsibility of what it means to be a real, uh, the, the good shepherd. He personalizes it and says, not only am I at the door of the sheep, but I'm the shepherd himself. And I think that's a pretty good division of the text itself. It shows us that Jesus was making great effort to get them to understand several different metaphors so they could relate it to who he was and ultimately what uh, his responsibilities and his work would be. We might also contextually, if we had time, go back and connect this with John chapter 9 where Jesus healed the blind man and there was uh, different levels of faith. It was the blind man who immediately uh, believed in Jesus and followed him because he was blind but now he saw. There were the blind man's parents who were ambivalent about it. They understood that the man had been blind now be seen, but they were unwilling to confess. They were unwilling to make a commitment. And then there were, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were, wouldn't believe at any cost. They were his enemies. And that sort of 
shows us the different levels of faith that were existing in Jesus' personal ministry. So what follows in chapter 10 is important to that particular division. Would, you, would they believe who Jesus was? Would they be able to make the connection, not just from the aspect of who Jesus said that he was, but who the prophet said he would be and how he fulfilled the Old Testament expectations of the Messiah? The shepherd and the sheep were important to that. And certainly Jesus uses that metaphor for that reason. So when we look at this aspect of the first six verses, Jesus presents here a picture of Jesus and his sheepfold. Uh, the true picture here you see that Jesus represents is that there is an enclosure or there is a, uh, there is a sheepfold or there is a group or a flock of sheep that need protection and care for. And one that the, the way that they care for them, the shepherds did it that day, is they would uh, at night put them in an enclosure called a sheepfold and shepherds would bring them in and they would bring them particularly in at night or when there was some danger that, to where they might fall prey to, to, to predators, they would bring them in. And then in the morning they would gather their sheep back out the fold, and they would take him out to the pasture during the day. And that was a common occurrence. No doubt, people in Palestine were very familiar with that agricultural element, though you and I are not. It was taken right out of their everyday experience. And Jesus uses this common picture to illustrate, I believe, a distinction between himself and others who claim to be the leaders of Israel. That's why I think this goes back to chapter 9 and reflects this aspect of the, of the enemies of Jesus, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who stood against him. But what Jesus says here is that there, see, there is a true way in, and then there is an illegitimate way in. Uh, there is a real shepherd, and then there is the thief and the robber. So if anyone comes into the flock, you see, in any other way other than going through the door, if he does not, if he is not given access to the flock in a legitimate way, then he's a thief and robber. And that's not hard to understand. If you find someone climbing in your bedroom window. You probably know that guy wasn't invited. He's probably not somebody that should be there. And if I saw someone climbing in your bedroom window, I'd probably call the police. Why? Because, because people that come to visit you don't climb in the window. They go through the door. So there's a door to the sheepfold. Anyone who doesn't come in the way, the legitimate way to come in, the way it would be anticipated that they would come in, then that person is a thief, one who takes something that belongs to another. Or he's a robber, a word that means someone who takes something by force or violence. The one who enters in by the door, he is the true shepherd. He is the person that should be there. And he is the person that, as Jesus goes on to explain, he is the person that's first recognized by the doorkeeper, and then he's also recognized by his sheep. And so verse 3, the idea he's admitted in, the doorkeeper lets him in. And then the sheep know his voice and they call him out by name. They follow him wherever he leads, verse 4. So you see the image that Jesus is giving. The true shepherd goes in the way he's supposed to. There's someone there to greet him and and announce that he's coming in, or at least allow him to come in. And when he comes in, he calls the sheep and they go out. I'm convinced that in terms of deciphering this illustration of Jesus' personal ministry, that the doorkeeper may very well be John the Baptist, who came announcing the coming of Jesus and was prophetically suited to do that, and even to the idea that that, that many of the disciples of Jesus followed him because... John the Baptist had opened the door for them to have belief and faith in Jesus. There were others who denounced John the Baptist, who thought he was a counterfeit or a fake, who went out and tried to test him, who would not submit to his baptism. And they were trying to lead Israel. And what Jesus may very well be illustrating here that they were unwilling to accept or understand is that those are not the true shepherds at all. Those are counterfeits. That if they were the true shepherd, they would recognize, the doorkeeper would recognize them and, uh, and let them in, so to speak, as they did with Jesus. But you remember the encounter in Matthew chapter 3 between John the Baptist 
uh, and those who come from Jerusalem, Jewish leaders, that you take rocks and make sons of Abraham, uh, that you are vipers and snakes. Uh, and that's certainly, I think, what uh, uh, Jesus may be referring to here. But the disciples and the, those, who, those of the general audience don't understand the application of this analogy. So then Jesus then makes a twofold claim about himself uh, in the next paragraph when he says, I am the door of the sheep. So he opens up the discussion, so to speak, or at least the illustration by saying that there is a door, a legitimate way in, and anybody who doesn't come in there is counterfeit. But then he goes, he goes further to say that, emphasizing the statement by, mo- by the term most assuredly, that I am the door of the sheep. The door of the sheepfold represents legitimate access to the sheep, and it represents legitimate access for the sheep. That the door would let the shepherd in, and the door would let the sheep in both. And Jesus seemed to employ both applications here, that he is the door of a sheep, not only because, you see, he is the the legitimate access to to, uh, the fold, but also the sheep themselves, you see, recognize that. So there's a sense in which the, the, the use of the door is a litmus test from the standpoint of discipleship. That those who want to come to the flock, those who want to bring in other sheep, those who would claim to be shepherds and going to bring sheep in for, the, for, the, for their protection, must use the door. If they don't use the door, then they are not a part of that flock. And they, are, they should not be there. So those who have claimed to be shepherds, leaders of the flock of God, who reject the Messiah, who will not accept Jesus' miracles, who will not accept what Jesus says, that they won't follow Him, that they are His enemies, they cannot be the true leaders of the flock. They must be false shepherds, robbers and thieves. And so they don't have the, they don't have the right or the power to come in. And we'll talk about right and power at the end of this text where Jesus says, I have the power, because that's, I think, again, implicit in the illustration itself. But true sheep know the voice of those who lead them. And that's specifically applicable here in the aspect of Jesus' voice, and we'll talk about that as well. Paul told the Galatians that if anyone comes to them, even an angel, with any other gospel other than that which had been delivered, the apostolic message that he was to be accursed. That there was to be a discernment made. That you look at the message and you understand where it came from and you recognize whether this person has the right to lead, whether or not he's the one whose voice you should listen to. That the thief and robber only come to harm the flock. And that Jesus says, my sheep know the difference. They can tell and they know the difference. They will listen to the voice of a stranger. They will flee from the stranger. That's powerful, I think, uh, confirmation for Jesus to make about the nature of his kingdom and the nature of people that uh, make up that kingdom in his flock is that they do not listen to the voice of strangers. The other application that Jesus makes is that I am the door of the sheep and those who would come must come through me. It focuses on the individual sheep themselves. If we enter by the door, we will be saved. But in that sense, we will find that Jesus used the word saved. We will find security in pasture, the image of the shepherd and the sheep. But trying to get in any other way, you see, will not provide those results. For the sheep, what Jesus would portray is that there is no other way into the sheepfold except through the door, who is Jesus. Now, what's that mean today? Now, I think that we could we could talk about what it meant to the to the, to the Jews of Jesus' day and those who were Jesus' immediate audience, but I think it has real application to the thinking we, that we might engage in with individuals today. It's sort of a hot question in, in, in religious circles as to whether or not a person has to believe in Christ 
to go to heaven, or whether or not that we ought to be tolerant of those uh, in terms of a doctrinal way to those who, who do not follow Jesus Christ, but still seemingly serve, serve the same God. There are many individuals who even call themselves Christians who refuse to say that those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ, such as the Muslims and others, that those individuals will be lost. That there's a fear about that. And I think that there are several passages that we can go to that would help us to better understand that, have some firm ground on which to make a decision. But I think certainly John's teaching uh, helps us here. You know, John didn't have any trouble making that call about the absolute exclusivity uh, of believing in Jesus Christ. John says in 1 John chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit, where they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. One thing you can appreciate about John's teaching is that he's pretty black and white, pretty this way or that way. He puts us in the position of making a discernment, and sometimes he even helps us to see how simple that discernment can be. You either come by Jesus or you don't come. That Jesus, in John's Gospel itself, is recorded the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the light. In chapter 4, uh, he goes on to say, and we have seen and testify that the Father has seen, the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. In chapter 5, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life, he who does not have the Son does not have the life. So there is this uh, apostolic confirmation of what Jesus was saying in the simple illustration of a sheepfold. There's one way in. There is a single door. Jesus says, I am that door. Peter addressed the Sanhedrin after he questioned about his authority to heal a blind man through the power of God. He said, "The the stone which the builders rejected, God has taken that very stone and placed at the cornerstone of the building. And then then he goes further to say, in terms of the restrictions that were placed upon him, he says, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter understood that. He understood the concept of the single door and that Jesus was the door and the sheep must go through Jesus to get to the Father. In the next paragraph, where Jesus talks about specifically about being the good shepherd and which presents really the second claim of Jesus. The first one, I am the door. The second one, now I am the good shepherd. Jesus completes the lesson. He completes the metaphor for us. He is the good shepherd. And I would, I would think too, at least from my perusal of the, the, the motive of the shepherd, that this probably was the most impactful of the illustration that Jesus used because it was so rooted, as we said before, in their understanding not only of their everyday life but of, of the life of the patriarchs in the Old Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament prophets spoke often about the work of the shepherd or God's interaction with his people as that of a shepherd over Israel. That, that Israel was, you see, uh, the, his, his sheep and that God would shepherd his people. A couple of passages that bring that out in Isaiah chapter 40. O Zion, you bring good tidings. Get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms, and carry them in his bosoms, and gently lead those who are with young. 
And so the image of God's protection over His people, even at a time where there is distressing discipline of God coming on His people, was the image of a shepherd. That God would shepherd His people, that He would bring a strong arm and protect them, that He would provide for them food and sustenance, that Israel would be a flock and God would be the one who would care for the flock. Jeremiah told of a time when Israel shepherd would gather Israel shepherd would gather them that he had scattered them and he would come back and gather them in verse 10 hear the word of the Lord O nations and declare it in the isles afar off and say he who scattered Israel will gather them and keep them as a shepherd does his flock we studied a couple of weeks ago I think it was a couple of weeks ago we studied about Ezekiel chapter 34 and the image that Ezekiel presents there uh, of God rebuking the so-called shepherds of Israel you see, who were not being faithful to God and who had left the flock open to pray and who would not feed the flock but fed themselves. At the end of that, uh, you see, that rebuking of the shepherds over Israel, God makes a promise that He would gather His people. They've been scattered because they had no leadership. But He would go out and He would gather them together, together again and He would bring them back in. In verse 34, verse 23, in chapter 34, verse 23, a passage that obviously speaks messianically about Christ. I will establish one shepherd over them. He shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now we read that and we think, that's talking about Jesus, isn't it? Well, sure it is talking about Jesus. The New Testament even portrays that as being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. But you think about how powerful that image was, even to those who did not, weren't weren't able at that time in which it was said to them, apply it to Jesus as something that was looking forward to a time in which God would bless His people. Who was coming back? Who was going to be leading Israel? It would be David, the shepherd. The one who was both the caring shepherd and powerful king. And in every aspect, that represented the coming Messiah. Well, Jesus says He's the good shepherd. But He does more than that. He also tells us why He's a good shepherd. He's not just a good shepherd because He's a good person. He's not just the good shepherd because he is the Messiah. But rather he's a good shepherd because he does that which a good shepherd does. That it's in his activities and his willingness to participate in the very element of being a shepherd that makes him good. And that has to do with his care for the sheep. You know, uh, sometimes when you get new neighbors, the, the people... Right, live right next door to you, particularly maybe if you live in a neighborhood, the people right next door to you pack up and move away and you're waiting for who's going to come and live next door or you have a little anxiety about that. Who, who am I going to get for neighbors? One time, Sometimes one of the questions that comes up about that, I wonder if those people are going to rent that house out or they're going to sell it and somebody's going to actually buy it. Because if you're looking for neighbors, generally speaking, you'd rather have a homeowner than you would have a renter. And that's not to say anything about, about renters. It's just to understand that when people rent property, sometimes they don't treat it as well as if they actually buy it and they own it. And statistics bear that out. And so you go buy a new car. If you go buy one that's been a rental car, you've got to expect that people probably didn't treat this car very well because they only had it for a couple of days or a week at a time. And then you see, uh, it, uh, then it went back to somebody else. And so people are very willing many times to open their window to their car and throw trash out on the road. And those very same people would never take that trash and throw it in their own backyard. Why? Because it doesn't belong to them. And that's what the, that's the, you see the image that Jesus presents. There are those who cared for sheep who were rent shepherds They were hired for the day to take care of sheep. It didn't belong to them. So when the wolf came and when there was danger, that hireling at Jesus' culture. He'd run. 
oh yeah, you know, he didn't want the sheep to get eat up, but they weren't his sheep, so he'd rather run than get killed trying to protect somebody else's sheep. He was doing it for the money. He wasn't doing it because he loved the sheep. Or as Jesus says, because he owns the sheep. Now that's important perspective here because what Jesus says is I am the good shepherd because I, I'm willing to give my life for the sheep. I'm willing to lay down my life for my own sheep. And understanding that Jesus says that, not only as we look backward and we know that He did that, but He, he says that because He already has made purpose in His heart that He's willing to do that because these sheep belong to Him. He owns them. And so He cares not just for Himself, but he cares for those in the flock. That was different than the Pharisees of Jesus' day, and maybe different from very many leaders of churches today who readily abandon the truth for money, who will leave the flock open and susceptible and vulnerable to false teaching so that they can get along with the people or so that they can promote themselves or they can get rich. Why does the Good Shepherd lay down his life? Well, it says in verse 17, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Now we say, well, Jesus laid down his life so that he could save me, forgive me of my sins, to provide the price for sin as a redemption. That's certainly what the Bible teaches, and we understand that in a very powerful way in our own lives. But what Jesus says here, I think, is also very important for us to recognize. That that's what makes Jesus' work as a shepherd very unique in the sense that he would lay it down, his life, so that he might take it again. A shepherd that runs out in front of the wolf and fights the wolf off and kills the wolf, but he dies himself. What does he accomplish in that? Well, he's a heroic figure. He's a self-sacrificing figure. He's a good shepherd in the sense that he was willing to engage the enemy. But if he's dead, what happens to the sheep? There is no more shepherd if the shepherd dies in the process or if he stays dead in the process. What good would it do? Jesus is making the point, I think, in this text that I'm laying it down so that I might take it again. The whole process that I'm giving my life, not just so that I can be a martyr or heroic figure, I'm, making my, I'm giving down my life so that I can have the, show the authority and the power to rise from the dead and not leave you alone. That I'll not only defeat those who would prey on you forever, destroy them, but I'm going to come back to life and I'm going to stand beside you as the shepherd forever. I'll always be your shepherd. And so the Hebrew writer says that Jesus lives to ever to make intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, that's the wolf, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So this tells us something about the flock for which God, Jesus has died. They don't have to be afraid anymore. Not only do they have to be afraid because they know there's not some hireling looking after them, but they know that their shepherd gave his life, but he didn't stay dead. He remains their shepherd, even after the great sacrifice that he made that redeemed them from their sins, because in that redemption he took away every sense of fear that they have of anything that Satan can do against them. Jesus' shepherd motive here, the image of the shepherd, is powerfully encouraging to those of the flock. The other clear characteristic of the Good Shepherd, as opposed to the hirelings, the sheep know and respond to the voice of the Good Shepherd. And that's at the very heart of this parable. 
Jesus mentions voice five times in the immediate verses here. So he's telling us something that characterizes the true sheep of God and also God's work among us as the shepherd. In verse 3, when the shepherd first comes to get his sheep, they hear his voice. In verse 4, he brings them out of the sheepfold. He goes before them because they know and they recognize his voice. Verse 5, the sheep are able to avoid danger because they can distinguish between the shepherd's voice and the stranger's voice. Even those sheep who are not of the fold, who later on will be brought into the fold, they become part of the fold because they recognize the voice of the shepherd. And then later on in verse 27, when these disbelieving Jews are surrounding Jesus and demand that He tell them if He is the Messiah, He plainly tells them, You are not of my sheep, because if you heard the voice of the shepherd and you came to me, you would be my sheep. But His sheep hear His voice. He knows them, and they follow Him. So the voice of the shepherd is another litmus test that Jesus presents here to the disciples to make that distinguishment that's so important. And so he tells us here that the sheep know him, and he knows the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. So the, the shepherd knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. So he's not the hireling, but it also it helps us to understand, at least as we look at this, the importance of the word know, and what Jesus is actually saying in this image of the sheep. The word know here is used in the sense of what Barnes says is affectionate regard. I don't know if I had that up here or not. I don't. Uh, it says it's used in the sense of affectionate regard or love. It implies such a knowledge of their wants and their dangers and their characters as to result in a deep interest in their welfare. He goes on to say that Jesus knows the hearts, the dangers, and the wants of his people, and his kindness as their shepherd prompts him to, def- prompts him to defend and to aid them. So the Jesus, when Jesus stands up for the shepherd, as the shepherd and protects us, from the wolves of doubt, from the wolves of death, from the wolves of the aspect, you see, of the bondage of sin. When He gives Himself for us, He's giving Himself for us because He knows us. But what does that mean, that Jesus knows us? Well, I believe that when we see the word know, we recognize that many times in the Bible, most times in the Bible, it means more than just intellectual knowledge. It more means more than just knowing about something. But rather, it goes far beyond the aspect of having to do with relationship. That when a person knows someone, or talks about God knowing us and us knowing God, is talking about an intimate relationship. John again is the one who brings this out for us in the in his first epistle, in First John chapter four verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So John would say, knowing God is loving God, because God is love. He goes on to define loving God as keeping the commandments of God. In chapter 5, in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. So a person that knows God is the person that loves them. A person that loves is the person that keeps His commandments. So it has to do with the practical element you see of being obedient to God that we claim that we know God. The other element of that I think is as well very powerful for us. And maybe somewhat sometimes elusive. That Jesus knows his sheep. We are to know him. And that involves the aspect of faith and obedience. Full trusting in God. Following him. Hearing his voice. But God knows his sheep. How does Jesus know us? Well, I pondered that question. I know Jesus knows me thoroughly. He reads my heart. He knows everything that goes on in my mind. Nothing hidden from him. Because he's God and he demonstrated that in his own personal ministry. He read the hearts of people. And approached them as a result of the things that they were actually thinking. 
But again, the word knowledge here of God knowing his people may go beyond just the aspect of knowing about someone as God knows about me. But rather that God desires and does engage in a relationship with me. A personal, intimate relationship. In verse 10 and verse 3 of John, the passage we just read, that's brought out because Jesus, the shepherd, knows his sheep and he calls them by name. You know, I think about my memory today, I think that means I couldn't have very many sheep (laughs) if I had to call them by name. Because I never remember all the names. You think these people like, does he really know all the names of those sheep? I don't know if Jesus was describing something that actually existed among shepherds, and maybe it would have been even more powerful to them if it didn't really happen, that the shepherd couldn't remember all the names of his sheep. For Jesus to say, I'm the shepherd and I remember every one of your names. He knows us personally. He knows what your problems are, he knows what your fears are, he knows the temptations that so ultimately come into your life. He knows your triumphs. He knows everything about you because you are his sheep. But then in verse 15, Jesus steps it up. He says, I know my sheep as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So God knows me as his sheep in the same way that the Father knows Jesus and Jesus knows the Father. If you were going to describe close, intimate, personal relationship, the closest relationship you could possibly imagine, what relationship that would, would that be? I don't know that we could think of one that would be closer than saying, Jesus knows the Father and the Father knows Jesus. They're one. There's no difference in their will. There's no difference in their thinking. There's no difference in the intensity of their love and their purpose. The only thing we can distinguish between the Father and the Son in terms of scriptural language is the person. But everything else is together. And Jesus uses that image here and says, I know my sheep in the same way that the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Intimate, closely. He knows us because He loves us. And He loves us because He knows us. Someone gave the illustration of this aspect of knowing and recognizing and knowing as the word is used here uh, an illustration of a husband waiting for his wife to get off an airplane maybe you've been there before you know your spouse had to go away from you on an airplane you got to go pick him up at the airport and so you're waiting there that where, where that little turnstile goes around all the luggage comes out you're waiting in the baggage claim for them to come walking out and here all these people come walking off the plane and you look right past them you, you don't you don't acknowledge them you don't look at them you got your you're looking for someone and when you see that someone and you know them, you recognize them, you run and you embrace them. They're the only one you hug, right? Why? Because you know them. Because you know them. And that's what Jesus is saying about you and I. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. So salvation is, is not something that takes place you so, in some peripheral region. It's not something that just takes place theologically between the pages of the Bible. It's something that takes place personally, individually, when a person is redeemed from their sins and they come into the family of the flock of God. When Jesus loves us personally and gave Himself for us, He was demonstrating that He knows us. What are the conclusions? Well, let's think about a few. Jesus said, there is that what I was looking for. Jesus is both the door of the sheep and the good shepherd. He is both. The access in, and he is the blessing of being in. No man can provide access to the fold except the door of the sheep, and that is Jesus Christ. There is no pope, there is no church, there is no religious institution that make you right with God. 
that can even define your relationship to God from the standpoint of relationship can only be through Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He is the access. He is the door. And our access is through the sacrifice of our shepherd Jesus. Jesus tells us in this text why He's the good shepherd. Why He is our good shepherd. Because He laid down His life for us. The passage that Brother Dennis read for for us just a few moments ago in Ephesians chapter 2. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity that is the the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. That He has reconciled us into one body through the cross. We have access to the Father by one Spirit. The writer of Hebrews refers to Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep who will make us complete to every good work through the blood of the covenant, the everlasting blood of the covenant. You see, the writer of Hebrews is making the same connection. Jesus is the shepherd because He laid down His life for the sheep, but that He lives again and continues to shepherd His people. And then, lastly, to be saved, we must respond to the voice of Jesus. His sheep listen to His voice. I've said it a few times, I think, from this pulpit, that if there's any definitive statement about what is a Christian, you know, well, what is a Christian? What is the Bible, how does the Bible describe a Christian? If there's any definitive statement in all the Bible that really answers that for us, I think John chapter 10 may provide that answer. Christian is one who listens to the voice of Jesus and follows Him. Christian is a sheep. And he listens and he recognizes the voice of Jesus and he follows Jesus wherever he leads him in his life. And that's what Jesus says. You see, he defines us. So those who are saved are those who listen to the voice of Jesus alone. They open up the Scriptures and they hear what God says. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. You know who said that? Your shepherd said that. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. If you would be saved, you must listen to that voice. There might be a whole lot of people out there saying, nah, don't worry about that. You don't have to be baptized. Salvation comes in another way. If you don't feel about it, they don't feel that way about it, then don't worry about it. A lot of other voices. God's people don't listen to any of those voices. The one they listen to is the voice of their shepherd. And he says, come unto me, all you labor, heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. He told his apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every creature, he that believes is baptized shall be saved. Will you listen to him? Follow his voice. Can we help you? Let's stand there, sir.